Hello, and welcome to another episode of Humans of Magic, the show that gets up deep and personal with your favorite people in Magic the Gathering. I am your host, James Sue. You are listening to my conversation with Dom Harvey. Dom is a Pro Tour competitor and content creator. He is very high level, whether it's playing magic or creating amazing magic content. In this conversation, we're going to be going into Dom's backstory, how he went from UK to Canada, what it's like to go through COVID in a new country, as well as some of the ups and downs of being a content creator. Let me tell you, it's not all good times. Dom has definitely struggled with various aspects of it and is very honest about what it's like to be a content creator now in Magic in 2022. Dom is incredibly humble. He turned down a lot of my compliments of him point blank when I tried to give him compliments. And I just had a really enjoyable experience talking to him. I think he's basically an open book. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dom Harvey. I also have an exciting announcement to make. That's right, Humans of Magic is now on YouTube. I finally added the visual component of this podcast to number one video platform on the internet, and that is YouTube. So please find Humans of Magic on YouTube. Please subscribe. Please get notifications for new videos. Do all that stuff. I think it's going to be a fun journey. I finally picked up a little bit of courage and knowledge to do the visual component of the podcast. We're going to do some fun stuff in addition to getting the full episodes, like the one you're listening to. I'm also going to be experimenting with vlogs, experimenting with shorter clips. So I think it's going to be a fun time. You can find the link in the show notes or on my link tree. Please go check it out. I think it's going to be fun. Please leave a comment, like, subscribe, do all that stuff that YouTubers want you to do. I'm now a YouTuber. Please also follow Humans of Magic on the other social platforms, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. You can find all the accounts on Humans of Magic, one word, on those platforms. And of course, you can still get Humans of Magic in all the usual places, all the podcasting platforms. If you're listening to this now, that means you're on it. Please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. And if you're interested in supporting Humans of Magic directly, please head on to my Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Especially with the weekly releases and the YouTube content that I'm now putting out, every little bit of support goes a long way. If you join the Patreon, you can get access to our exclusive Discord community and we can chat. You can give me feedback. So if Patreon is a good time. Please consider joining if you haven't already. Dom, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing all right. Whereabouts are you today? Are you in Canada or the US or somewhere else? Well, I'm in uh, Toronto or Toronto. Wait, so... Is it I... Toronto? Toronto? It, it really depends on who you ask. Yeah, you, you kind of uh, expose yourself as an outsider if you pronounce that, that second T. But uh, I will tomorrow be heading across the border to the SCG Con in Baltimore, which has a special significance because the last one of those that was scheduled back in 2020 was the weekend that 
it seemed like half the world shut down with the onset of COVID. So uh, the cancellation of that was like the the first sign to me that oh wow this is this is all really happening. Uh, and if you you go back and search the SEG Bolt hashtag on Twitter. It's this real uh, beginning of the end of the world kind of moment there. So hopefully this one goes off a little more smoothly. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good time to head back now that things are more normal, right? You can get across the border and uh, it feels normal in North America. That's what I hear. Yeah, there's some weird stuff regarding, uh, or, or the last time I did this, uh, regarding like leaving Canada and then coming back in and uh, with my immigration status at the time that added this layer of complexity to it but uh th this one i'm hoping will go go a bit easier than that so you're originally from the the uk and how long have you been in canada for or canada slash us or north america uh canada essentially although i did spend every other weekend for a year or two in the US. So that was a, a second home of sorts. But I've been in Canada for uh, almost four years now. It's, uh, it's kind of wild to think about. Okay, so going back to your your remarks about Toronto, are, are you feel like you're an insider now, right? You're an insider at in Toronto. I guess so. Yeah. Uh, if you're not after that length of time, then will you ever be is the question you start to think about. But uh, it, it is a place which has a reputation for being quite hard to crack into socially. There's a sense that people have their circle of friends from when they were growing up or from in school or university. And once you become an adult out in the real world, out in the big city after that, it's quite hard to add yourself into one of those circles. And that does kind of match my experience. But uh, one of the joys of magic is that it's this amazing kind of a uh, social lubricant. Like this is uh, like when I moved here, I basically didn't know anyone. I had a handful of online acquaintances and magic was the thing which wh while I had this commitment to myself to say yes to everything and really dive into as much as I could and I guess overcorrect for the mistakes I'd made in, in the years before that, uh, I knew that magic was this reliable way to hey, first weekend I moved there, there's a PPTQ locally at a store, I'm going to go there and I'm going to meet some people and I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to keep seeing those people and one thing will lead to another and that will be uh, my primary social circle at first. And I, you know, a lot of those people from the first few weeks that I met then are still people I am you know, close to and in touch with now. Who are some of your good friends that you've made while you've uh, made the you know, decision to, to live in Toronto? It, it sounds like it's, there's definitely some magic friends, right? Or friends met through magic, I should say. Uh, for sure. And that, that distinction of magic friends versus friends that you meet through magic is, is a pretty big one, I think. Because uh, I, I think during COVID, this was one thing that really became apparent to a lot of people was when their social circle was pretty tied into how much they were playing magic and when they were playing magic. And when you couldn't play magic because we were all locked in our houses uh, for months on end, uh, then you just didn't see those people, you heard less from those people. And so if, if some of those people had dropped off the map for you, then you do start to get the suspicion that, oh, I, they weren't really my friend or they weren't my friend in a deep sense. And it was only because of magic. But I think the reality is, especially if you're like a, an adult male in your mid twenties, like that's that's the primary way that you make friends is through these activities and through like doing things and doing it together or competing against each other and so on. And I think it's, it's only natural when that excuse to get together and hang out falls away for some of that connection to fall away with it. So, um, 
Yeah, but when I saw a lot of that discussion early on in COVID, people tweeting that uh, they were so glad that they had kind of moved away from magic and the scales had fallen from their eyes and that they saw who their real friends were and, and so on. I'm not going to go and challenge them over that because we're all processing this incredibly strange and difficult experience in our own ways. But I do wonder if some of that kind of uh, causality is, is getting mixed up there. Yeah, that that is really... I mean, before and after COVID is just so, it's just so different. And how did it feel for you at the time? It must have felt like just, just like a 180 or I don't know what's the term. Just, just also getting acclimated to a new, a new environment in the midst of that, right? Well, for, for me personally, it almost felt like I'd been sent back in time a few years because for most of the, the 2010s, like while I was at university and then the few years after that, I was essentially a hermit. I didn't really get out much or talk to people much. I would sometimes go to magic tournaments and that was the primary way that I would see a lot of people. But uh, for the most part, I just kind of kept myself and uh, was quite reclusive. And so I, that was, in one sense, that was voluntary back in the day, but it didn't really feel like that at the time. It felt like there's not really an excuse to, or there's no reason to go beyond these boundaries and try and explore new things because it's, it's just bound to fail. It's not going to work. That's kind of the, the mentality that I'd got myself in. So that was technically voluntary, didn't really feel like it. And then we get into COVID where this is uh, a state that's being enforced on everybody, including people who until that point were social butterflies and social animals who really thrived on getting to hang out with people as much as possible. And for them, I imagine it was much more of this radical upheaval than it was for me, where for, for me it was, okay, well, I guess I'm doing this again for the foreseeable future. And I hate that. Like I, I moved to a different continent across the world to try and escape that and, uh, and get out of that, that rut that I was in previously. Uh, but it's not an unusual experience. And I, I, I wish that it had been, uh, but having to kind of just bide my time like that, I suppose, um, wasn't as alien to me as it was for, for a lot of people. What was your main motivation for moving to Canada? Well, part of it was that I, as I alluded to, I was really in this rut back in the UK. I felt like my life was kind of going nowhere. And when I asked myself, is that likely to change in, in a year, in two years, in five years, it was unclear how any of that was ever going to improve. And so this was like the, the one last big roll of the dice, if you like, uh, to see if, you know, if it's me, then moving across the world is not going to fix that because I'm still me and I'm still, uh, you know, I have the same personality, behaviors, mindset, what have you. Uh, but if there are any kind of uh, environmental or external reasons why my life is like this, then by throwing all of that up in the air, maybe when things land, those will be different and then my life will be different. And it, it worked out. I don't know if it was meant to work out or if I was lucky that it did work out or anything like that. It's, you get into some like weird existential questions at that point, but um, I don't regret that choice at all. And I don't know, I had the sense from even years before I moved that I'm not going to be happy here in the UK. And it took me longer than I wish it had to take the steps I needed to do to try and challenge that. But maybe the timing there was wise in the sense that if I had moved when I was 22, 23, maybe I would have uh, missed out on some of the opportunities that I grew up when I was here. And then I would find myself slightly less unhappy instead of, you know, I think in, in a much better place now. Can I ask, what was it about being in the UK? Was it like just your particular city or the scene that you were around or there? Cause I don't want to 
I don't want to generalize it, but oftentimes there's some sort of trigger or boiling point where people decide I need to displace myself, you know, literally across the continent. Like there's got to be something, right? Yeah, I, I did wonder if it was something local to me uh, and one way to try and change my life would be to do the thing that a lot of people in the UK would do in their early 20s and I'm going to move to London and I'm going to figure it out and if you can't do it there then where are you meant to go uh, but I, I did suspect that it was something about the UK as a whole and I don't think that these are complaints that are particular to me necessarily but uh, there is for me the one thing that always held me back was it felt like there's a real lack of kind of a sincerity or connection and you're really not meant to have strong interest in things or really set these goals for yourselves and try and chase those outside of a very narrow context of climbing the corporate ladder or these these very narrowly prescribed goals that you can set um and if you have interests that fall outside of you know football and drinking and, and a few other things then that's just seen as a bit weird mate you know like that's like why are you doing that um and there's like for me there was this ambiguity when i i tried to, to meet people and connect with people of am i doing something wrong am i the one who is uh just fundamentally bad at this or is this just how british people are like are we kind of withdrawn and kind of uh not introverted necessarily but not as welcoming to new people or new experiences um in that way and it, it is funny that even though the uk really punches above its weight in terms of performers and entertainers right when you think of uh, musicians actors comedians uh tv as a whole uh so on and so forth down the line the uk is you know, world leading in all of those despite uh its population and so on but when it comes to actually forming those sincere connections with each other uh, i think especially for guys in the uk there's a real just tall uh tall barrier there that's hard to overcome uh and it's not a matter of individual blame or anything that's just yes some of it's individual some of it's systemic what have you um but it, it just felt so much harder even with the people that i did consider friends back in the uk than it did with certainly a lot of the the americans that i knew from from online and so on uh as well also uh let more this was more of an issue for me in my early 20s but a lot of social life in the uk is really heavily based around alcohol and i mm. was teetotal when i was a teenager and for a lot of my early 20s Nowadays, I, I enjoy a drink in moderation, and I, I've learned to enjoy that and to not have this kind of ideological objection to that that I had before, where it really felt to me like if I'm losing control of my faculties, then that's a really dangerous spot to be in. Um, and I, I've learned to appreciate that happy medium where it can be this, this good social lubricant, it can uh, grease the wheels and let people have fun without really changing the core of who you are, as long as you can do it in a controlled way um but back then I, I was really firmly against that and as someone who was like pretty shy and socially awkward and so on i could have used the help there i could have used alcohol like give, giving people that nudge that that, that it does uh, and so when i don't have that to go on and not drinking means that you're shut out of a lot of things or even if you're not shut out it's just that that's another layer that you have to to, to get through um then that that was an extra challenge one funny crossover for that with magic actually was back in the day there was this issue where wizards had mandated that friday night magic it had to be a on fridays and b it had to be in your your local game store because this was 
the model that, that worked in the US and uh, it seemed like that should translate cleanly across the world. But then the, the regional representatives of Wizards heard this pretty loud backlash from the UK because uh, A, we don't have many local game stores in quite the same way, like the, the economics just don't really work and, and so on. But also on Friday night, even the, the stereotypical nerdy people who play Magic, a lot of them are down the pub. So you're trying to coax them out of there into some d dingy yeah. game store to, to play cards, like that, that's just not gonna fly. And so a lot of the time when you, if you go to a city in the UK and you look up the local magic groups, it's gonna be, yeah, it's Wednesday night in the local pub and you know, you'll know you buy a beer and you'll, you'll play some commander or whatever and, and that's it. So how do they get around that? Did they change the rules later so that FNMs could be in the pubs or do they just kind of report them as being in the LGS where people are actually next door at the pub. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure there was some, some kind of hybrid. <laughs> there must have been some low stakes uh, tournament fraud uh, going on, but uh, all of the details there went above my head. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it just speaks to how culturally prevalent, prevalent, prevalent. I, 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 I'm from Canada, so I guess I don't know what the proper pronunciation <laughs> is anymore. But the ubiquity of just just drinking in general, and if you're not into that, or if you know your limits, you don't want to get too far into that. It sounds like it can be pretty hard to just be someone who doesn't drink. It's kind of like being a Brazilian who doesn't like soccer. I guess that's what PB is, if I remember. Um, but that's <laughs> well, another story. I, I mean, <laughs> hey, I, I was a Brit who didn't like soccer. And that was another thing too. Where oh, that's the ultimate since, faux pas, right? Yeah. It, it really is. And since I moved to Canada, I now have learned to follow it at a very low level to just get this baseline of knowledge in my head. Because if you go to a, a barber here in Toronto, a lot of them are immigrants either from Europe or from other parts of the world where they love soccer and they, they, they want to talk to you about soccer, especially if they hear a British accent, right? You're going to get quizzed about uh, uh, Chelsea, yes. Man U and so on. So if you can't pass that basic test, then now you look even weirder than maybe you did when you, you walked in the door with your, uh, you know, your, your shaggy haircut. Yeah. I mean, it's like, if you have your UK card, whatever that is, like, you just have to know these things, right? Um, that that's a great point. Yeah. So do people talk about soccer in Canada? I'm so far removed from it. Like they're just talking about the European leagues or premier leagues or something, or are they talking about the North American soccer leagues? I'm, I'm going to guess that's probably like number five or number six on the popularity of sports, uh, in North America. Yeah. Right? I, I really don't hear Canadians or Americans talk about it that often. You hear a, a lot of renewed interest in women's soccer or women's football uh, recently, uh, and the UK has been doing really well in that, uh, the, the Lionesses. But um, yeah, it's pr pretty down the list behind, I guess, whatever American football is meant to be. And I, I hope the disdain is coming through in my voice there. Um, and then, you know, all, all the other sports that uh, take up people's time. I don't know too much about football. I'll call it football because I'm in, in China and we're closer to Europe than, than the US. Uh, but it seems like American football slash soccer is where stars go at the twilight of their careers when, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not a, I'm not a footy fan or anything, but it seems like that's where they go when they're on the downswing and they want to make good money is they go to the LA galaxy or whatever team it is right i, I don't know <laughs> something like that i'm yeah. sorry this is turning into a football podcast i did not intend it this way uh no i, I mean that that's fine but there are many many better people to have a, 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 <laughs> so, a soccer podcast with if that's uh if that's your jam yeah so going back to canada i mean have you found it to be 
obviously you have to control for COVID because that's uh, an exceptional event, but have you found it to be mostly what it, you said? It's mostly kind of what you, what you like or what you're looking for, right? Yeah. And there's always a sense of the grass is greener somewhere on the other side. And when you, you move somewhere and you live there, then you discover just flaws or frustrations, which aren't really apparent when you're just there as a tourist. And so when I was scoping out places to live, I had been to Toronto a few times and it seemed like even though it was less of an exciting place to visit than many of the other places I'd been both in Canada and in the US, it felt more livable in some ways than a lot of those. And when that was the, the framework I was looking at it through, then the, the Toronto seemed like a better choice, even though I, as a tourist or as a visitor, there's, there's a lot less to do. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't regret my choice. Uh, I, I like a lot of things about Canada. There's a lot which just kind of goes under discussed or is uh, frustrating uh, day to day, but uh, no regrets in terms of moving here from the UK. And e even though Toronto has this reputation, which the big city in any place has of being unfriendly and people won't give you the time of day and so on, uh, like, you know, that London is that in the UK and New York and, and so on. Like every, I, I don't actually, it, it just, just Beijing or, or I guess Shanghai even does, is there somewhere in China that has that same reputation? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. It has like the <laughs> metropolitan urban cities. There's this sort of, uh, Beijing, Shanghai exceptionalism, which I'm sure goes, maybe there's some parallels to London or capital cities of the world. I think maybe. Yeah. But e even though Toronto has that reputation, I found even, e even if we accept that's true, I found that it's still a, a much more welcoming place. Uh, than than when I was in the UK. And some of that is just the sheer number of people. Like when you're around millions of people in the city and then you have the, the greater Toronto area and so on, like you, you can find your people, even if that's a, a narrow niche, whoever you are, like there's someone in that area for you in a way that there isn't back in, you know, the, the city of 100,000 people that I lived in in the UK or like the, the tiny village kind of wedged between that city that I lived in. Uh, before that so uh some of that is just statistical but i do find that on the whole like i i connect better to canadians than i ever did with with threats at the time what's the most canadian thing you've picked up that is a good question you, you're putting me on the spot here uh maybe it is dropping the second tee in toronto which uh, does does not sound <laughs> like much um yeah i that that's the thing is that that's what a lot of the Canada skeptics, I guess, would say to you is that there's really not much of a national culture in that sense to sink your teeth into. Um, like you, it, it's a pretty young country. It doesn't have the extensive history of somewhere like the UK or the US and so yeah. on, at least in terms of, you know, that we talk about it uh, in our communities. So it, it's kind of a, yeah, I, I don't know. That's, that's a tough question. <laughs> Well, there's the classic tropes, which is Canadians love to apologize. Canadians dress very blandly or have no fashion sense. And Canadians love talking about the weather. And I, I, I firmly fall into all three camps, to be honest. But maybe those are actually spiritually connected to being British. So I don't know. Like, maybe maybe you've already got that down. So it doesn't feel Canadian whatsoever. Yeah, that's, uh, that's just a legacy of imperialism right there for you. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, just going back to the the present day, uh, what are you, I mean, you're obviously there's a historical basis for going back to SCG Baltimore, but I mean, are, are, is there anything particular you're looking forward to on this trip? Like, is it just like going to Waffle House or is it something else? 
I mean, I think the Baltimore is a little, little far north uh, for a visit to the house, but um, I do. I, I'm just looking forward to seeing people. Uh, there are people who, two and a half years ago now, um, I expected to kind of see whenever I made these periodic trips to the US to go to tournaments, who I haven't seen since then, and who I, honestly I may never see again. Like that is really in play for some of them because they moved away from Magic during that time, or. Their priorities are different. They live in different places. So I, it is weird to think that, like, and I had no idea of it back then, but, like, that is the end of that chapter in my life in, in some regards. But um, equally, there are people who I haven't seen in, in months or in years who, like, that is that is the point of the trip. That's why I'm going all the way to this tournament where if I want to play a tournament, there's, there's local stuff. Like, Toronto is great, has a great local magic scene. But uh, when it comes to just hangouts and seeing people, uh, you know, there are people I really want to see again. And there are people I'm excited to meet for the first time. And that's part of why I'm, I'm making the trek out there. You've already won, I think, from your Twitter, you've already won two RCQs, is it? So you don't have to worry about qualifying for now. Like you, you're, you're, you're locked, uh, at least for, I don't, I don't exactly know how the system works, but you're going to just wait to play in the RCs. Is that right? Yeah, I have my two invites locked in, and now I get to play the role of gatekeeper, essentially. Of uh, I get to free roll the local RCQs. Uh, there's nothing on the line except for store credit and so on. And just I, I show up, I, I hang out, I play Magic, and if I win, great. But I guess it's not great insofar as it burns an invite from someone who could have used it instead. Uh, but uh, it, it is, I think, an important feature of the system as it goes forward. Uh, and it's something which is pretty unique to Canada. So. A lot of uh, Americans, for example, they find themselves in the position of they win the RCQ to get their one invite for their one regional championship, as opposed to the two that we have in Canada. Uh, and then they are not allowed to participate in those tournaments anymore. And that can create some weird logistical issues. So, for example, back in the PBTQ days, this was the same thing, where if the, the guy who was driving your circle of friends to all the events, if they won... Uh, an event early in the season and they got their qualification and they couldn't play anymore well you have to find a new driver because it was uh it was a lot to ask of them to try and have them ferry you to all these tournaments when they couldn't even take part in them uh themselves and i think in general any any system which leaves people with some kind of tinge of regret in their mouth after they win the tournament and achieve their goal like that that feels like that should change and that's something which i think is easy to fix you can you can have the invites passed down or you can you can have some other method in place so that it's not this all or nothing thing of um you get to play but then if you win the invites don't pass down or you just don't get to play anymore and i think both of those are, are pretty bad outcomes so right now you cannot pass it down right to be clear correct yeah okay so if you're in the finals and you're not allowed to you have to follow tournament rules and don't get dq'd for rolling a die or bribing somebody so you can't actually just say I'll give it to the second place person or something like that, or I'll scoop you, to you. You can make a uh, carefully worded offer of a prize split, essentially saying, uh, we can split the prizes so that you get the invite and I get everything else, which if they value it enough, they're pretty likely to accept. You know, oh, with, okay. With so a you, could, you could technically do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if the matchup is good enough, I suppose, but, um, yeah, I mean, you, you can do stuff like that, but it it feels like it still shouldn't be up to that you kind shouldn't of have to like navigate yes. that necessarily it should just be baked right. into the policy right yeah. yeah and no one enjoys having those conversations and I, I don't think it's a conversation that the system should encourage you to have yeah what's the weirdest conversation you've had related to like splits or prizing 
Or maybe there isn't even a weirdest one. There's just like a wide range of weird ones. Like, I don't know anything that comes to mind. There have definitely in the past been these conversations where you can't explicitly voice the offer that you're making, but both yeah, parties know on some level that, yeah, yeah, like we'll, we'll go and have a chat in the, the smoking area outside the tournament and, and settle this <laughs> outside the earshot of any passing judges. But um, there, there can be that weird uh, communication issue sometimes where like you think you're communicating clearly and insofar as you can without saying explicitly, but you're not sure if they're picking up what you're putting down. And again, just don't remove just remove that barrier and stop the need for that to happen and i think you uh i think everyone's lives get gets a lot better yeah has anyone ever written this official unofficial unspoken rules document for magic tournament play like i feel like every time somebody is navigating that for the first time they have to learn it for the first time and probably make mistakes out of that or some learnings from it but like I, it'd be great if there was like just some just some master Google Docs somewhere that told you like how to navigate these things. I don't know. It's especially uh, damning given that if you you phrase it incorrectly and what you say is construed as an offer of a bribe or something, or if uh, I, I was listening to your interview with uh, Anurag Das earlier and he mentioned getting disqualified from that open top eight because he, he uh, said something which in his uh, you know early career naivety he assumed that introducing this element of randomness into the outcome of the match was something you were allowed to do. And as, as soon as the, the coin was in the air, the judge just, you know, had him escorted from the building. Um, like, I think that that dynamic, it, it hurts players who are newer and less enfranchised and, and don't know what you're meant to say with this hush, hush, wink, wink kind of tone. Uh, and if you are on the wrong end of that, if you are doing things with best intentions and you get disqualified, some people shrug it off and they come back, but that that can be like a not just a thing that ruin. Yeah, it, it, maybe it doesn't just ruin your tournament; it ruins your entire enjoyment with with magic and with the game. So um, that that is one thing which, even after decades of paper play, it feels like there's still a lot that's antiquated about that, and that that is one of the the, the downsides of paper play over online play. Uh, it is not that it's a, a contest necessarily, but like online, it feels like there's less room for a lot of that kind of. Uh, in between stuff yeah or it's out in the open because someone can look at the mtgo mm, chat logs yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> although I've, I've seen some creative stuff happening too but that that's a that's another story another topic for another day so what's your position now on the grind like obviously you're gonna play the two in canada there's what there's a montreal and a vancouver is that is that what it is those two uh, that's that's next season or okay so this season is uh toronto and calgary and then i think next season is vancouver and and montreal yeah i'm sorry i'm so out of touch with the where, where they are in canada but oh, yeah I, so you're i mean hey, what, I, I guess the question is like what's your what 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 does it look like for you right now and how do you look at this whole new pt competitive play system and your personal involvement in it in a way i feel like for this first cycle at least i'm free rolling those tournaments because i have the the invite to the first pro tour like the first paper pro tour uh, when that returns early next year which as of right now they have not announced the date they've only said it's in february and one of my best friend's wedding is in february so unclear yet if there's going to be a scheduling conflict which i'm going to have to resolve uh, somehow but well, which um, one are you going to choose if it's on the same weekend 
Well, I, hopefully I don't have to choose. I'm hoping they will let me defer the invite, but uh, I, I will grip my teeth and go to the wedding, I think, if it, if it comes down <laughs> to that. Um, okay. But so that is, that is the real prize, I think, for a lot of people, is getting that, that Pro Tour invite out of the regional championships. Um, and I hope that when those events happen, they feel like they are somewhat important in their own right. Like they feel like uh, a throwback to what nationals used to be or, or whatever, because th this was the issue with the the regional PTQ system and, and PPTQ system in the past was that you had these steps on the ladder where you win your PPTQ, okay, and you get to the RPTQ. And even if you win that, that itself did not feel like a, a big occasion, unless there was a lot of other stuff dressed up surrounding it. Um, it was just the the next step on the satellite to get to the Pro Tour. Uh, so I'm hoping that these events have this, this feel of like a, a big thing that people are excited to play, even if they don't come away with what they're hoping for at the end. So it sounds like you still have the fire. You still want to, you know, obviously you're going to play this Pro Tour. You're going to continue trying to qualify for, for Pro Tours. So what is it, what is it about magic, competitive magic that still makes it interesting for you today? So for, for this first Pro Tour, at least I, I had this sense of unfinished business because I got to play one paper Pro Tour under the old system years and years ago now. Uh, and I did okay with that. And it was, it was a great experience. That was the first time actually I got to go to the US and go to Canada and had some amazing memories from that, that whole trip and uh, made some friends who I, I still, you know, keep in touch with to this day. Um, and, and that to me is like, even if I had bombed out of the Pro Tour completely, just having the ability to broaden my horizons like that with that kind of travel, which was, you know, on, on Watsi's dime uh, because of how the, the system worked then, uh, that, that was a really life-altering experience, which I, I know a lot of people have similar stories of how their first pro tour, it wasn't just a, a tournament, it was a trip that encompassed the, the tournament and everything else. Uh, so I had that, but then past that, all of the equivalent pro tour experience, if you want to call it that, was online. So uh, I won an online PCQ in the very start of COVID, which qualified me for uh, this online tournament, which at the time, WOTC was uh, at a loss, just like the rest of us were, with how to handle the whole COVID situation. So we had this a tournament which no one really took that seriously or put that much weight on uh, and it was pretty shambolically run and it was just a, kind of a mess from start to finish and it felt like that's that's not what I won. I did not win an invite to that. I won an invite to the Pro Tour and I won that Pro Tour invite uh, and, and instead I, I got this. Um, and I, 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 you can't blame them back in early 2020 for not scheduling some large paper tournament, right? But um, I, I almost wish I had had the option of waiting until we were back here in 2022, looking towards 2023 to get that opportunity, even though it would have involved a wait of, of several years. Um, and then early in this year, I won back-to-back -back online PTQs, uh, and those were for the, the set championships, as they were called at that point. And those felt like better, more prestigious tournaments, even though each of those had their own share of horror stories in terms of running an online tournament on the arena client associated uh with them and so the, the, those were good experiences for me and i got to you know take an item off the bucket list in terms of testing with some world-class players and i i really enjoyed a lot of that but it's still not the same it's still not the paper pro tour and now that we have an in-person event that is called the pro tour and has that that label and that legacy associated associated with it it feels like that is the thing that I won, I guess now, several invites for, and I want to nail that, and I want to, to maximize my chance of doing well at that tournament.
you've been really deep in magic for a very long time and obviously been a very high level player all this time. Did you come up or grow up just watching the paper PTs and just kind of having a general appreciation for its legacy and just the competitors and the whole, the whole thing? Yeah, I, I grew up watching the paper PT insofar as you could even watch the paper PT back then because uh, coverage as limited we coverage, know it today, yeah. I, I mean, limited coverage in the, in the literal sense of you got to see limited sometimes and that they never quite figured out how to do that properly. But uh, the coverage as we know it only started about a decade ago in, in 2012. And so uh, when I was getting into the game in the mid 2000s, I was devouring everything I could, you know, old articles, old tournament reports, everything. But back then, uh, there was no Twitch. Uh, YouTube was in its very early stages, and uh, there, there was certainly not magic YouTube, as we've come to know it. Uh, so in terms of just the, the content that was out there, there really was not that much to go on. And so you, you would treasure every scrap of that you could get. And when the Pro Tour came around a few times a year, uh, then you would, you would want to watch it. But they would only broadcast the top eight, and maybe you would get some some deck techs uh, or uh, a few kind of video skits or what have you, and there would be text coverage. You know, great, I, I would read that. Uh, but in terms of watching the tournament and experiencing the tournament, you just, you just couldn't do that outside of three rounds with eight people who, they, I guess they are the story of the tournament at that point, um, but it felt like that story was always left very incomplete. And especially if... Uh, in my case, if it was a constructed format where I liked some of the, the decks or the cards involved or some of the players, I want as much of that as I can. You know, give me every feature match I can get my hands on. Uh, but back in the day, that just didn't really exist in quite the same way. And when it did, uh, it wasn't uh, glorious 1080p coverage on Twitch. It was this incredibly grainy webcast that you had to navigate through the labyrinth of the official wizards website in order to find in the first place and it was you, you really had to show your commitment if you wanted to watch uh, magic uh, stream live back in the day um and then you know we had uh, like gg's live and some of those SEG opens and the gps being broadcast and, and that was a game changer and i would i would watch every segment of that that i could and i even when i was meant to be doing other things but um for someone who had this endless appetite for that when i was getting into the game there just wasn't much, much of that to uh, sink your teeth into yeah it kind of sounds like you had to have been there right like if you're not literally physically in that convention hall or in the tournament center in the pt like it's very hard to just keep tabs on everything because it's just not it's just not online in any shape or form it sounds like yeah and you could read tournament reports and we should not be too romantic about that medium because the the average tournament report is not worth reading it, there's no uh no kind of a timelessness to it or even timeliness to it either it's uh, a lot of it is these belabored round by round descriptions of what happened in the matches with cards and in, in decks that you don't care about anymore or it's uh these in jokes between that person and their friends or like this gamer slang from the mid-2000s or whatever. A lot of it oh, is yeah. tough to read going going back and looking at it. But uh, the best tournament reports really bring the tournament to life and bring the, the author of those reports to life in a way that even, I think, some of the better video coverage fails to do at this point. And that's I, there, there is a, a big hole in the content landscape, I think, at this point for stuff which just, like, tells you the experience of a tournament. And this is why I really prize the, the paper pro tour over the online stuff, which can be fun to watch if it's done well. And there's, there's often a lot of good storylines, which they are 
better at uh, bringing to life nowadays. But uh, there's there's no sense of oh you had to be there or this is what it's like in that tournament hall as the rounds go on, like watching players get towards the top eight, watching the people lose playing for top eight and the heartbreak involved. Nowadays, it feels very sterile. It's, you're watching the screens and maybe you have the webcams of the players and, and someone uh, pops off in dramatic fashion when they win or something, but just, it, it's, it doesn't have the same energy to it. And I, I'm, I just, I know, I, I feel almost more alive when I'm in that tournament hall watching people play magic for whatever reason. And that, that's what keeps me going to these far-flung corners of the US, like trying to get into that tournament hall. I mean, I, I'm not on the same level as you, but I do remember, you know, traveling in the US or Canada and playing these GPs and be able to bird or just watch the feature matches in the pre-COVID times. That's when I was there. And it was just so fun to, to, to have that, like to actually see people shuffling the cards and the, the banter between matches, like the relaxed or stressed nature of the players, like, and, you know, being able to look the other way and see the commentators there. And it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just a good time. I guess there's the coverage has never been able to really, really replicate that in any, any meaningful way. So yeah, it's, it, it is what it is, I guess, when it comes to magic. Yeah. Given your circumstances and how, you know, how you felt about the PTs back then and the online and now it, it feels like the piece that you wrote on Pro Tour Philadelphia then has an extra level of meaning, at least the way I interpret it, because it's a way of looking back at a very seminal tournament at a very different point in time in Magic. I think this was what, 2012, was it? Uh, uh, 2011, yeah. So this 2011, was, yeah. Yeah, th this was just before they started doing the, the day one and day two coverage. So this tournament was still shrouded in mystery and you would hear all of these wild tales of people dying on turn one and turn two left and right and this this crazy new format that was just being explored and so uh it, it felt like of all of those missed opportunities of, of pro tours that were lost to history in one sense this was one that really deserved to be covered and so um th this is the piece that i'm i'm most proud of having written in you know the the few years i've been writing magic content now and i feel like it's a story that needed to be told and even if i'm not the best equipped to tell it in the sense of i wasn't there like i don't know what it was like in the room i'm relying on these people to tell me and to to bring it to life themselves i can't really be an active part of that process someone needs to tell it and people have not yet and we're coming up on the that this was for the 10-year anniversary of that tournament which I don't know why it has to be 10 years, but 10 is a round number. And I don't know why it has to be the anniversary instead of just at some point in the middle of the year. But this is how we you know, shape our narratives around things, right? So it felt like to, to mark that occasion, uh, someone should tell that story. And I was really glad to have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, so I'll definitely put this article in the in the show notes, which is the, the oral history of Pro Tour Philly. So... Uh, as I understand it, this is a this is a concept that you came up with, or you came up with uh, Ari Lax. And uh, tell me about how. I mean, you you mentioned that it's it's kind of a ten year anniversary of really the modern format, and uh, you know, and and ten is a nice round number. But tell me about how you developed this piece, because like there, it's one thing to just to take a concept to actually something that's executed very well, which in my opinion it was. Like it's just a just a brilliant piece, just like you really, under, you really get that context. So tell me about how you, 
you guys kind of developed that, that outline and that content. Yeah. So at, at the time, Ari and I were creating this, this modern podcast every week for SEG, which uh, lives on now under our own banner. Uh, you can search for Dominaris Judgment on wherever you get your podcast. Uh, and so given that the first ever modern pro tour and the creation of that format was coming up on its 10 year anniversary, we, we felt like it was only right to, to mark that occasion in some way. And so I floated the idea to, uh, Cedric Phillips, who was our editor at the time, uh, of what if we do this kind of oral history project to, to mark the anniversary of that. And I wasn't sure what the scope of that was going to be at the outset. Uh, and so there was one point a few weeks, you know, a few months in advance where we had this slow news week and we weren't quite sure what to talk about. And so I thought, well, let, let's just do this now and I'll talk to a few people and I'll write something up and do this little companion piece alongside it. And that'll be our, our piece for the week. Uh, and Cedric, uh, came back and said, uh, I, I think there's more to this that you can put into it. And if you give it more, more time to develop, then, you know, the, there is a ceiling that you can reach there. Uh, and so. I felt like, all right, I have a few months until the actual anniversary of, of this week and this tournament comes about. So let's take all of that time and work on this behind the scenes and really put effort into pie piecing this together and making it the best piece that it can be. Uh, and so with Ari's help, because he, he, was, he was there at the time. He was competing in this tournament. He had the connections with all of these, these pros in the top eight and all of these community figures and so on. Uh, you know, Gavin Verhe, who was integral in the creation of the format from outside Watsi and then inside Watsi, like that's one of Ari's close personal friends going back years and years. So uh, Ari was integral in being able to leverage all of that to help uh, get the whole thing together. And then um, I, I pieced together this kind of vision for what the episode could be and all of the people that I wanted in it. I was able to get basically all of them, which I was pretty happy with. Um, there are a few gaps. Like if you, you look down the top eight, I at least get some, some small form of commentary from most of them. I wasn't able to get in touch with, uh, Chikara Nakajima, for example, like, uh, one of the, the Japanese competitors in the top eight, um, reached out, didn't get a response. And I think that there was a language barrier there as well. So, uh, I kind of wish just for completion's sake, we, we'd had that in there, but, um, for the most part, like, I, I feel like. You know, everyone who goes to that pro tour has a story in one sense, and it, it's, it sounds kind of twee to put it like that, but you know, everyone in that pro tour has a story. A lot of those are interesting to some degree, even beyond I'm a top eight or, or what have you. And so I wanted to get a good mix of these are all the people who, you know, maybe these are the eight who you did get to watch, uh, on day three of coverage on Sunday. Uh, but then here are also the people who came close to being there on Sunday, but fell just short and, uh, has that memory haunted them or changed for them after 10 years or uh, the people who like this is their first pro tour and what did that experience mean for them and how are they able to convert that forward and one of those in fact was a uh, recent guest of yours uh, Alex Hayne who uh, at the time was this uh, young Canadian right behind the ears uh, playing in his first pro tour he then he goes to that pro tour and sees behind the curtain realizes that actually these are not the amazing magicians on the next level that I pictured. Some of them are, but I can hang with these people. I can get to that level. And so within eight or nine months, he himself is a pro tour champion. And then he parlays that into a career as a pro player in the MPL, you know, at the top of the game. But this is where that journey started for him. This was a crucial step on that journey. So it, it felt like there were, there were so many stories at this tournament in particular to be told. And so I really did my best to go out and seek those and have those people tell them in whatever way they wanted. How challenging was it to, for you and Ari to 
shape the narrative because I've been involved myself in creating features like this and it can be difficult to figure out how to hone in on, for example, an Alex Hain versus, uh, you know, Josh who had the splinter twin deck versus somebody in the top eight. Like, did you set out to have a certain narrative or agenda or did it organically come together as a result of just talking to a lot of people? Like, what was that process like for this piece? Some amount of it was just who can we get? And so if, if we didn't have Alex Hain, for example, if we did, couldn't get in touch with Sam Black for whatever reason, then that, that changes what the ultimate story would look like in the end. And so to some extent, it is just a function of who shows up to tell their story. Um, and even though I had my own, I guess, historical memory or impression of the tournament coming in, and I kind of had a, a sense of these are the stories that I want to prioritize and try and tell in particular, I also tried to take a step back and not really insert myself into that process too much um, and not kind of, because I, I don't really have an agenda in telling these stories other than this is you know the, the piece I want it to be versus if I'm someone who, you know, if I'm working on the coverage staff for that event, then there's to some extent this incentive to tell a story that you think will resonate with a particular audience or uh, will drive things in a certain direction even if maybe it's not strictly historically accurate or whatever. But uh, for this piece, there's no, I, I felt like there was no pressure to point it in a certain way. And so I could just let it come to me. And then once I have all of this information in front of me, uh, kind of bob and weave and try and tell that story the way I wanted. And so I, I had the, the raw material, which was, you know, dozens of pages of transcripts of interviews. And then I had to cut all of that down and decide for myself what are the important parts what are the bits that people are going to want to hear and given that this was both an article and a podcast I, I think people will want to listen to this but they're not going to want to listen to nine hours of this but if i can slim it down to a more respectable four and a half hours well then and you know <laughs> and it's people they've heard of yeah. and it's there's a certain level of uh you know, urgency in how we move through things, then I think that will hold people's attention until the end. So there is some amount of having to be selective there, but I felt like I could just let it breathe and let it be the piece which, when I was that guy devouring everything I could about magic history back in the day, like this is a piece I would have wanted to read and to listen to. And so this was almost a nod to that version of myself from 10 years ago, as well as a nod to the people in the tournament that you've heard of, and then also some of the people you maybe hadn't as well. So you were writing and recording this kind of for for yourself in a way as being uh, a reader or the audience, is that right? Yeah, and I think that description is true of a lot of the better content that you'll find out there, or at least the content which people will feel most personally proud of. Like if I had finished this and filed the whole thing and Cedric had come back and said, okay, change of plan, sorry, we're not we're not doing this, I still would have felt happy to have gone through that whole process and to have got a chance to chat with these people and meet these people and, and listen to what they had to say, even if I couldn't then broadcast that to a wider audience in the way that I was hoping at first. Can I tell you my favorite part of this piece? Sure. It's actually, it actually feels like the deep cut because what I did is I was one of the people that actually went and read the transcripts of the full Okay, interviews, okay. Which is kind of like the unabridged, right, a version of the story. I read the story, then I read the pieces, but I found the story or the interview with 
the name unfortunately escapes me right now, but he was the person that with his partner did the walk the planes and did the whole all the documentaries on on, oh, the, uh, on the pro tour. Nathan Holt, yeah. Nathan Holt. And that was deeply fascinating to me because first of all, he was super honest, including, you know, how devastated he was about the community backlash to pay the pros when his stuff was coming out. But I had no idea about how he was just sort of hand selected by wizards to to cover this and basically had carte blanche or like like complete freedom to do it however he and his partner wanted to do it like that just seems really wild to me in retrospect like just having like like he was talking about how he could just get the pros to say whatever and do different takes and do very spontaneous things like ask somebody questions in German and like there was no there wasn't even like really an approval system like it was just like he just went and improved and I I mean I'm not saying that in a in a dismissive way but it's it's like he was able to kind of flex his creative muscle and I had no idea that was how it was done because I only watched I watched all of the 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 work that he's put out on YouTube and I, I really loved it, but I had no idea like this is what this is, you know, Nathan's background and this is kind of how it it started. So it was really interesting to to like get that even in a Pro Tour Philly retrospective is like these these rich side stories about people, which I think is kind of speaks to how how well you and Ari did it, in my opinion. So yeah, so that's that was a funny story in, in a few ways for me. So firstly, because that was his origin story. And as he explains in his portion of that interview, that's just because he lived in Philly. He was a local guy, local magic player, decided to just show up to this, this big magic event that was happening in his hometown. And if that had been... Uh, any of the adjacent Pro Tours, or if that Pro Tour had just been in any other location, then that never happens. And so walking the planes never happens. And so you, you, this whole butterfly effect ripples throughout a lot of that like mid 2010s uh, magic history. But also because I had watched that original walking the planes video, watched some of the the web series that had come after that back in the day, and decided this isn't really for me. I'm I'm not the target audience for this. And even though it is going down well, and, and this guy sounds like he has a pretty good gig. He's getting flown all over the world to, to do these skits about magic. I, I don't know if I'm the target audience for this. And then later on, like through a separate interest, I became pretty close with Nathan's wife. And I didn't know that she was his wife at the time. But then when like I, you know, I, I see on Facebook, like bit tagged with Nathan Hall, it's like, I put two and together and it's like, oh, wow. So I, I then like met them in person and kind of became friends with them. And then got to like loop back around to this period from years ago when I didn't know this guy and frankly was not really engaged with his content and actually get the inside scoop on how all that came together and get this new appreciation of it. Because for example, what he said about how when he's goofy, it allows the people who maybe fit that stereotype of like the, the reserve buttoned up magic player to come out of that shell a little bit because they know that they're never going to be the one who's looking silly. It's always going to be him. That was this light bulb moment for me of, oh, okay. So it's not just him being goofy because he is goofy and, and like he is, that's, that's who he wants to be. But there is also this intentional calculated aspect of that, that feeds through into bringing those people out of their shell. Yeah. I think it's just when you know someone's method or their mindset on how they do things, it gives you more appreciation naturally. 
And I think it's also just maybe just, at least for me, it's just getting older. You start to have more appreciation for things that you never appreciated before. Like even very, even object oriented things like, you know, I didn't appreciate <laughs> this, this, this bottle of wine, or I don't know like how this magic card is made. And now I do. So it's just like, uh, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but yeah, I, I just really, I really enjoyed the piece. And, um, as I was reading the piece, I could also feel this incredible tinge of jealousy slash regret. And I'll explain that, which is the fact that I thought it was so good, but it also made me feel, this is going to sound bad, but it made me feel like I can never pull this off in a million years because someone for someone to do this properly, they have to actually have what you have described in your writing as like the ability to do content with a historical awareness, but you actually have to have a certain acumen of competitive magic to also be able to write about it this way. And it's very different from, and I'm not trying to put anybody down, but it's very different from like coverage articles where it's just a very factual, okay, this is what happened here. This person played this player and they played this card and the, the match was won or lost, but rather it's very much like, obviously you have the, you have the, the, the huge advantage of, you know, hindsight, like you can go back and, and kind of like figure out different narratives. But I also feel like you were very, you and Ari were very uniquely suited to do this piece. I'm not sure if you, have you thought about it that way? Like, it feels like you're one of like the only, like one of maybe 10 people in the world that could do this piece justice, which you did. Well, I'll, I'll take the compliment first of all, but I, I think I, I might completely disagree with that. I don't know. Cause I, I almost feel like, um, you, there's some uh, kind of interview content or there's stuff like this where the person constructing it is a participant or there's someone who they have they have skin in the game or you're interested in what they have to say about the event over and above the other stories that are being told uh, as well. That's not really the case for me. It's to some extent the case for Ari who was there in the room. But for me, uh, back then I was just some guy watching the three rounds of it that were broadcast and, you know, following along on Twitter back in the day. Um, so I, I feel like if you didn't know much about magic or even anything about magic, or if you didn't have the same passion for the project or what it involved, I think you could still get there and get to this outcome. Like you, you might need someone to sketch that initial outline for you, but I feel like because it, the the process didn't really need to involve me in any way. I was just the person who happened to to pick up the torch and run with it. Then anyone who had the the wherewithal could have, as long as they didn't get in the way, as long as they didn't obstruct it somehow, then they could almost have arrived at the same outcome. Which m maybe is giving myself too little credit. I don't know, but I I don't feel like it's a a personal piece in that sense. I think there's also a lot to do with. For me, it's a lot to do with also the intentionality of even wanting to do this piece because uh, we kind of talked about how like tournament reports are essentially kind of a lost art these days. And as you said, the average tournament report back then, we have to remember, is pretty pretty darn bad, right? Um, and I just feel like content has gone in this direction where we are just watching coverage and EDH gameplay on <laughs> on Twitch uh, or pre-recorded YouTube videos or someone talking directly at a camera like this. And I, I, 
I just don't know there's a, if there's a lot of room for these kind of features anymore. And I think just you willing to uh, carry the torch and do that says a great deal about it. So maybe me saying, uh, Dom, you're one of the 10 people, like it's also like you have the motivation or the inclination to, to do that. And not a lot of people do, you know what I mean? I think there's definitely a place for it, but I don't know if there's a place within the, the, the content ecosystem as it exists currently. And I, I take on board all of the, the criticisms that people like uh, Sam from Rustic Studies make about just the word content and their, their visual disgust at the idea of a content creator or something, but I run with it uh, for now. Like that, that piece I put probably dozens of hours of work into and then more on top of that thinking about it. And then on the production side, that was the one episode of the podcast back then that I manually went through and edited down and compiled myself because that was how I could uh, stick the landing and bring it into the vision that I, I had for it. Uh, and so after dozens of hours of work for this piece, which you can only really do as a one-off, right? Like you can't tell uh, the, the story of this particular portal every single week. Like for that one piece, I get the same kind of official acknowledgement and crucially the same compensation as I would for his 1500 words about a deck that just top a tournament and his a sidewalk guide and now go on your way see you next week and I, I don't fault them for that i didn't i didn't ask for more i didn't expect more but when the incentives of content these days so heavily point towards uh short-term reactions to things or frankly clickbait which no one really asked for but you need to just have a certain sheer volume of content out there to direct people to your site and so that's how you get these lists of uh top 50 white cards countdown for edh these things which like no one wants to read and frankly those people don't want to write but because of how the incentives are structured like those those pieces need to exist and, and someone has to write them and so that's what they do this week and maybe they hope they get to do something a little more fulfilling uh, next week uh but like this kind of long form stuff, I think there is an appetite for it. And it's, it's certainly the piece that I got the the most positive feedback on as well. Like people really enjoyed being part of it and enjoyed reading it, I think, the, at least the ones that got in touch. But after all of that, like where where do you go from there, right? Like you can't, you can't really make a career out of just doing stuff like that every so often. I guess the, maybe the closest analog would be something like the Rhystic Studies video essays where uh, that content or those videos, excuse me, have more time to kind of gestate and breathe. And Sam can release a piece every month, every few months, but you know, the people are waiting for that with bated breath. And it's going to have so much thought and care and time put into it that when it hits, uh, people love watching it. And crucially he gets the, the, the subscribers and so on that he needs in order to make all of that sustainable. Um, but I don't know if, I don't think that's true for stuff like these these oral histories. As much as I would love for that to be the case, like I legitimately would love nothing more than to do this for every single pro, uh, pro tour going back to to God knows when, and and have that be my main uh, occupation, if you like. But like that's that's not a realistic vision, and so that's an appealing side project. And I've thought about trying to pull the trigger on that uh, a few times, and maybe I will at some point. Uh, but I, I kind of understood this as this this has to be a one off, and it's not not really a springboard to anything else. Yeah. Do you think there's a model where it, either it's a community supported Patreon model or because I think even in journalism world, the long form piece is 
I don't want to use the word very serious, like dying, but it does feel that way. Like even, even the publications I read, I, I, I don't think long form pieces come out very often. It's not really good ROI for the publisher or for the, for the, for the journal. And, uh, do you think the Ristic Studies way, which is effectively like community funded, uh, do you think that's, that's, uh, a plausible way to do this, or do you think there's another way to do this? You do see the emergence of stuff like Substack, right? Where people can can be supported and make pretty good livings in some cases just by vomiting out the contents of their mind, which they want to get out there to their audience and their people, and they're not as constrained by this is what my editor wants me to write or needs me to write. And this is the topic that I have to write about this week. They can just set their own agenda. Uh, but again, there's an element of survivorship bias, I guess, there, where like you, you see the people who are making six figures writing newsletters. You don't see the people who took that plunge and it didn't work out. And now they're going back to whatever like legacy media job they had before, right? Because it's, you know, that that's uh, maybe a dying system, but also a more stable one in some ways as well. Yeah, it's definitely survivorship bias. Definitely the fact that a lot of the most prolific Substack writers, they came from, they already have a majorly developed career. In fact, I would argue that them writing for Substack is sort of like just writing for a publication because you've also read about how, I'm sure like how Substack incentivized them to basically gave them kind of a, a risk-free way to experiment on Substack and, and, and things like that by effectively paying them. So there's a lot of things like that. And I guess for magic, you might actually be one of the biggest magic writers in existence at this point. So like maybe, maybe the ceiling for magic is just different somehow, where you have to use a different medium like YouTube to, uh, to actually make it work with ad dollars or other things. I don't know. Again, I will, I will take the compliment maybe, but it's, if, if it's true, it is a sad reflection on what is going on in the landscape. Because when I began writing for SEG, it was as part of this stable of writers which included people who when i was getting into the game and and wanted to improve these were the people that i looked up to and the people who i would read religiously every week like you know paolo jerry sam black ari himself and, and lots of other people and i understood going in that some of my pieces when they appear when they appear on premium i am not the reason that people are paying money to star city to read to read these columns right i'm just i'm part of the, the bundle that they get along with that but that gives me this goal to chase and this this thing to aspire to where if i put the reps in and if i work on my own game but also on my writing then one day i can maybe be in in that conversation uh and now that all of those people have been let go and i'm only there because i was being paid the least in the first place and it's it's been cut down to bare bones then there's no sense of aspiration anymore like I'll, I'll file my piece and i'll get my check and 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 so on and i i guess be grateful that i'm i'm still there and get to do that when most people are not at this point uh but there's not this sense of being proud to tell people that this is where i write and uh, that i am on the same like byline as all of these other people so how do you feel your writing career where do you see the future for yourself? Like, I, I know you've got the, the podcast you're still doing with Ari kind of as an independent thing, which, um, still, still great podcast. And, um, do you have any thoughts as to, in, in terms of, uh, we'll use the dreaded word content, like just in terms of, you know, writing versus podcasting versus playing magic and then maybe writing about it versus, um, 
tweets. I mean, you're really good at that, but I think it's very hard to monetize those <laughs> tweets. James, that's, that's the kindest thing anyone's ever said to me. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no, you I... are. I mean, you're a natural. <laughs> it's like, doesn't it, doesn't it feel pretty surreal how you can spend, you know, like you said, dozens of hours on Pro Tour Philly and, and some people really love it like I do, but then it doesn't even hit as hard as a, as a banger tweet. Like, it's just like, what kind of world are we living in? But anyways, that's like, Hate, hate the game, not the player, right? So, Oh, I, I, I love the website. It, it's, uh, you know, I, I just say whatever I want to. I just type things and then people press the like button and <laughs> dopamine just flashes in my brain. As, you know, they, Floods into your I, brain. And yeah. I like the rat finding the cheese at the end of the maze, you know? Um, yeah. But I, I don't know. I think the, the mediums each have different things to offer. And then beyond that, right, you have, you have streaming, you have... Uh, I don't know what magic TikTok is like nowadays, and I, I I dread to think about it, but I'm sure there are people pushing the frontiers, I guess, over there. Uh, I, I think they all have something to offer. Uh, with writing, like, there, there's a lot of stuff that I would want to write about, which only people like me would want to read, and I don't know how many people like me there are, or how many of them would be willing to pay me for writing the stuff that people like me, i.e. them, want to read. So it's a lot of it, I think, has to be this uh, independent project and, again, doing the stuff that you want to do versus it's kind of baked into the idea of a weekly column that, like, if you have to come up with something every week, sometimes it's going to be something which you don't feel any urgency to write about or maybe you don't actually boast any expertise in because you have other stuff going on in your life other than magic and uh it's kind of impossible i think other than honestly people like ari who do a great job of juggling all of these boards in the air at any one time i think it's very tough to stay on top of the, the relevant formats that uh you, you've been tasked to write about and to actually write your column on those and, and put some care into that and have it turn out well and also balance that with any kind of other commitment if you have a also a nine to five normally and other hobbies and, and a partner and so on and so forth. Like something has to give. And the easiest thing to give in there is the level of care that you put into the column this week, because if you're operating at 60% instead of 85% as, as a writer this week, that's unfortunate, but it's not the end of the world versus these other sacrifices, which feel a lot, a lot harder to make. And so, um, I, I think the, idea of a regular magic column in some ways is antithetical to that being good or that being something which you feel you need to make um and i, I think most magic players honestly have a few good pieces of content in them whether it's uh podcasts or columns or whatever and this is the joy of magic is everyone has their own niche on this incredibly wide map where maybe on the whole their understanding of magic is isn't as developed as yours but when it comes to the intricacies of modern Merfolk, they've got you covered, right? Like they, they can tell you things you never would have thought of, but you can't really make a living writing about modern Merfolk every week. And so uh, once you filed your, your one-off column, where do you go from there? And that's, that's a difficulty, I think. And the most successful writers, I think, do the best job at kind of uh, disguising the game there and making it look like this is something which they've been wanting to write about uh, for days and they've been just, just waiting for the chance. Which also speaks to the 
the unintended consequences of Twitter, right? Because you can basically chunk an article into several banger tweets, which you, which you have done very well. And I'm just looking at your stuff. I'm just like, this is incredible. Like I could never write a tweet like this in, in 5 million years. <laughs> just take that as a compliment. Um, but yeah, like, do you, I think, I think we're kind of speaking to the nature of articles and weekly releases and things like that. Have you been close to burnout when it comes to producing magic content in the past? Definitely. Yeah. I, and I think more so these days where in the, in the early period of COVID, even though a lot of stuff about magic was at a low point in terms of there were a few sets that really came close to killing various constructed formats, or there was this like whole roller coaster in terms of where the game is going, where organized play was going and, and so forth. It, it still seemed like there was just a lot to talk about. And sometimes it was giving reactions to the latest troubling development in magic design or organized play or, or community news or whatever. So that, that is a, another aspect of the whole thing is that often as a content creator, uh, it's better when things are going badly because it's easier to uh, be part of some reaction against that than it is to mm. just give this update of, okay, nothing to report. Everything is going okay over here. No, no new yeah. developments. Right. Um, so, sorry. I'll be, I'll be right back. Yeah, of course. My cat is just scratching the door <laughs> nonstop despite uh, me closing it, and he just wants in. And I'm sure he'll he'll go out in a few in a few minutes. Okay. But it's just it's just incredible how much um, how persistent they are. So he, he can make uh, a cameo appearance if he wants. I, I won't object to that. But oh um, no no problem if he wants to climb on. He, I think he's actually checking out my my magic cards right now because I left the drawer open. So. Um, yeah, I, I currently Anyways, have yeah. these these stacks of cards on my table, you know, getting ready, sorting stuff out for tomorrow. And I am terrified of my cat leaping on the table and just f making everything fly everywhere as he is very much uh, want to do. But anyway, I oh I yeah, pay... have, has uh, has the cat bitten on or damaged some cards in the past or done anything crazy? Not yet, but I don't want to like jinx it and like manifest that yeah, into, not into being. So yeah, but um, even during that time at the start of COVID. It, as I said, I had the the incentive of keeping up with and, and trying to live up to the mark of these other writers to, to drive me forward. And so even if the topic for the week that I was writing about wasn't that engaging, I had this external motivator to, to push me through. Um, and so when that went away, a, a lot of it was like, well, I'm not judging myself against anyone else's standards anymore. And also I, I, I will say Cedric as an editor, I always felt like I don't want to disappoint him. And he's someone who, like, if he's unhappy with you, he will let you know. Like, if he thinks you filed a bad piece, like, you you will know that you filed a bad piece. And that's, I think, a good thing in terms of giving you the motivation to improve. Um, and the, the new regime that I'm working under is uh, much more relaxed in a lot of ways. But it, to some extent, there's that lack of a driving force as well that, that comes with that. Um, so... In early COVID, even though the COVID experience and the magic experience in many ways was a lot worse, having that column gave me the sense of structure in my week where, okay, well, I, I can't really achieve anything out in the real world at the moment, but I can try and nail my column for the week. And that can be 
that can be uh, a level of continuity that I can aspire towards. Uh, whereas now, uh, paper magic is coming back. Uh, a lot of stuff back in the real world is opening up again. There's a lot of other things to think about other than magic. Um, and to the extent that I have to think about magic, there's a lot less of a reason to really drive myself in that direction. So uh, I, I still love thinking about magic, writing about magic, um, but the necessity of it has changed, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, are there things that you might tell yourself now as a as a writer that you wish maybe the younger Dom might have known about? Not necessarily. I, I kind of think if you had me predict what that experience of writing weekly would be like, then I, I would have told you some some kind of general vague things and been pretty correct about it. Uh, I don't know how much I've improved as a writer over the past few years, even though I've been doing this basically every week. And that's scary to think about in a way. Uh, and I, I don't know how I would go about like actually improving or getting useful feedback on that. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's a kind of intractable problem that I'm trying to figure out how to approach. Um, all right. So I want to talk to you about your commentary experience because I, I talked to a, a few folks whom we both know, and uh, somebody said that you you worked your ass off to get the SCG commentary gig. So tell me about how that initially came about and maybe your motivations for getting into commentary in the first place. That was a real heartbreaker. So that was the, the dream, honestly, when I was back in the UK watching the SCG tour, SCG open coverage every week, I really envisaged myself in that chair and, and there was no realistic prospect of that ever happening at that point. But, you know, you, you dare to dream about these things sometimes. And so after I had been playing in those events myself for a solid year and doing doing well in those, and I think I was on camera that year, like in, in front of the camera personally, more than basically anyone else between like winner interviews and deck techs and so on. And so I kind of got that direct experience of, of being in that, that virtual chair. And so... Uh, when uh, Carmen approached me about the possibility of uh, being her coverage partner after Matthias Hunt uh, took a step back, uh, I wasn't the first choice, and I, and I knew that, but uh, she she pushed hard for me and put herself out there so that I could get that opportunity, and I'm still very, very grateful to her for that, even though it didn't materialize in the way that I think either of us hoped. Uh, and so it looked like going into the start of 2020, this... This might be on the table, but uh, this after being dangled in front of me one time, it was then withdrawn because it seemed like there were going to be some legal barriers or some some issues with you know I was this UK citizen living in Canada but had no like official status there, and I would be traveling to the US for work, so that adds its whole morass of uh, issues into things and it, it just seemed like that would be too big a, of an issue for them to deal with. So I did my best to just research what are the ways I can slice through that Gordian knot. And it really felt to me like I should not be the one doing this. It should be some HR department somewhere or some lawyer or immigration specialist or what have you. But instead, it's, it's little on me just going on Google and trying to mm -hmm. figure stuff out. But uh, I put a few proposals in front of them and it seemed like they were able to find a solution uh, that worked, uh, but it took some time to come about. And so even though... I wasn't able to do the opens at the start of 2020. Um, it seemed like for the second season, starting in June, I would be good to go. And I was really looking forward to 
diving headfirst into that and i was going to spend the months before then uh watching as much old magic coverage and commentary as i could and really just doing my homework and and practicing and getting up to speed and then COVID happened and there were no paper magic tournaments for the next 18 months and even though uh we had the SCG tour online where I got to cover some of those tournaments uh, with Carmen and so on. Again, not the same. Uh, I don't think anyone involved, not the organizers, the commentators, the players, uh, certainly not the viewers who barely showed up to watch those tournaments. And that's, that's why that all got canceled pretty quickly. Uh, it just wasn't the same. And we knew that. And that wasn't what I had dreamed of. And so I had the dream diagonal in front of me once and I reached for it and it got taken away. And then I grabbed it with both hands and like throttled it until it <laughs> finally submitted. And it seemed like it was about to materialize. And then it got uh, dragged away again. So there was a real sense of whiplash around all of that um, going into COVID. So there was like this direct consequence of COVID even, and look, I, I mean, everyone suffered from that in some way. And a lot of people suffered a lot worse than I did, but I just, in terms of, I went from, engaging with magic as my primary social circle at the time, my primary hobby, my competitive outlet, and now my profession, the, I, my, my dream job that it seemed like was about to be there, all of that just suddenly evaporated going into the early stages of COVID. And so having to work through that at a time when there really was nothing else to do because we were all just inside wondering how all of this was going to develop, um, that, was, that was a really weird time, yeah. Was frustrating be uh, an app descriptor? I, I, an understatement, if, if anything, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, I think it, in a way, it would have been worse, I think, if I had been in full flow, if I'd got to do some of those shows at the start of 2020 and and uh -huh. then mid-season, everything disappeared. But equally, I would have got a taste of it at least. I would at least have had those few shows to, to treasure as memories, potentially, and as learning experiences. And instead, I just didn't get any of that. And it's, yeah, it really makes me wonder what could have been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, would you consider commentary again if the world got back to a more normal state and you had a regular gig? Oh, I, I would love to. Yeah, I, I would be on the first flight to wherever the tournament was. The issue is, who, I'm, who am I going to do it for, right? Because the, the SEG stuff uh, doesn't have official coverage anymore. You have Anurag, who is this absolute hero of the community, just carrying the entire uh, effort on his back single-handedly and uh, deserves all the props in the world for doing that. Um, but there's no, you know, maybe I could jump on one of those streams every now and then if he was willing, but uh, there's, there's no regular gig. There's no sense of this is a stable career opportunity to work towards. Uh, and so with that in mind, there's no sense of like professional development. There's no, uh, you know, I have yeah. the incentive and the desire to really iterate on this and put the time in, in between gigs and so on to, to, to reach my peak because there's there's no chance to actually get to the top of the mountain yeah it, it doesn't have that continuity because i've i've heard magic players say that they go into commentary because it does provide that stability right so when you when you're trying to do that and there's no stability then you, it really makes you wonder why are you getting into that that thing where you're kind of like a mercenary and or contractor having to figure out where your next gig is and that's that's pretty tough. I mean, it's tough enough as it is being a, a magic player or a content creator, let alone having to do that, right? So, well, that was uh, the the unstated aspect of professional magic, insofar as you could call it that, back in the day, was that uh, before all of the the esports money got injected into competitive magic for this brief period a few years ago, 
there, there wasn't that much money to go around. And so you could not make a living just by playing tournaments and doing well in tournaments. And the people who could, the, the dozen or so people any year who could actually do that, realistically could be making a lot more money in a lot more stable of a way doing something else instead. You know, yeah, John Finkel, when he was top eighting every pro tour on site, I'm sure he was making decent money doing that, making much better money in his day job as a head fund manager or what have you, right? Or there, there are so many people uh, in competitive magic who they they make software during the week and then they go and play magic tournaments on the weekend. And honestly, that's that's the ideal setup, I think. That sounds like a, a pretty good life. Um, but they make a lot more money in the nine to five software job side of that than they do in the, uh, uh, in the, the, the magic side. And so th this was always the, the subtext of competitive magic, such as it was a few years ago, was that, well, this isn't the stable part, but this is the gateway to, uh, you know, a writing gig or a commentary gig or some other maybe salary position or at least more stable position, which you could parlay into something else. But now a lot of those pillars have also been knocked away um, on top of this explicit rejection of competitive magic as a lifestyle. Um, and so now if you want to make a living in magic, then you really have to find your own path. So maybe you do what Cedric does. You, you design your own Aperol brand, right? Or you, you have to find your own niche, but there's no real, uh, consistency in that. There's no guarantee of success either. Um, and there's no, there's nothing really to fall back on unless you are someone who had that stability before and you've saved up enough and you've got yourself in this spot where you can take that swing and if it misses then then so what i know you mentioned that in your in your past perspectives you that you might consider streaming like is that is that like a is that just a, a something that you don't want to do or is that something that you might still consider doing at some point because i think you've said or written about how you you may not think of yourself as the best person for that type of content, right? But uh, how do you how do you feel about it? I think it might be fun, and I, I still have vague aspirations to to try it at, at some point. And once I get the setup in place, the issue is for me is that I I can't be on all the time. Like I think at my best, I can put on a good show for people. I can't do that every day. And I I have a lot of days where honestly, all I want to do is just like curl up in a ball under a blanket and maybe play magic online still or whatever. But like, I'm not going to be engaging with an audience and I'm not going to be engaging as a streamer because, you know, uh, if it's gameplay, no mic, no cam, nothing else to, to, to engage you, then you're going to look for someone else who can offer you all of those things. Uh, so right. it, it might be fun as a one-off, but it, this is the other thing too, is that there are aspects of, you know, magic and everything else, which you can enjoy at a time of your choosing as a one-off or as an occasional thing, but which really wear on you over time when you feel this obligation to do them. So that, I mean, that's true of writing. That's true of, I mean, I'm sure it's true of this sometimes, right? Like there are times when you're really jazzed up and engaged to do it. And then other times where it's all right, well, let's get this done and, and let's move on to the next thing. Um, and if one of those things becomes something which you are reliant on professionally, then th that can lead to issues sometimes. Having said that, how do you enjoy guesting on others' streams? Oh, I enjoy that. And I, I will take any chance to, to taunt Jarvis or to, you know, I, it's mostly Jarvis, honestly, but I, I am open to, to offers if anyone else would, uh, <laughs> would like some company. <laughs> I feel like you guys have some good chemistry. I've definitely watched a, a couple of them, especially when you're 
on the stream or the or the vod. Um, yeah, I, I think you obviously you enjoy talking about magic. So you know, in that sort of setting, it, it, it it's it's a good product. I hate to use the word, but it's it's it, it's a good thing to see. So yeah, maybe you'll consider doing more of it in the future. I hope. <laughs> what are your personal goals in the next uh, one to two years? Uh, we can do magic related. We can also do personal, anything that, uh, that comes to mind. So I, I guess magic related is I, I have this, uh, scheduled event in the form of the pro tour that I would really love to excel in. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's just find a, a healthy way to engage with the game. First of all, because there have been times, uh, more often than not, honestly, where it has been a bit unhealthy or too obsessive or taken up too much of my time. And I would like to get that in a more stable place um and then find outlets for engaging with the game in the way i want to so whether it's stuff like the the, the pro tour or history or it's uh, some in-depth dive on some some very specific deck in some niche format that only a handful of people are going to read which i could never convince my editor to let me write and he should definitely not let me write it but I still want to write it because I, I, that's just what I want to do. Uh, so stuff like that. And th that's the beauty of magic. I think more so than a lot of other, uh, competitors in that space where it's like, especially in recent years, uh, at some points, if, if I'm recommending a new game to someone who, you know, they've, they've dabbled in Hearthstone or whatever, they've dabbled in these other digital card games. It, I, I don't know if I can honestly say that magic is better than those as a game at this point given you know the baggage of 30 years of the rules engine and, and so on and so forth or just the uh, I, I don't think i need to explain the the limits of like the arena client or whatever at this point those kind of speak for themselves but like there are other games which offer a a more seamless gameplay experience but i think magic has such a a, a breadth and a depth to it that you can find something for you in it and uh, I, I mean, I think I found what that is for me. Um, but you know, m keeping that as the focus, I think is, is the goal there. And then otherwise just, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like that, that setup I'd mentioned of, uh, software during the week and then magic on the weekends, like, I think that's a good way to live and I want to get back there and my skills are rusty because I've been out of that game for a few years at this point. And that's just, so that that's the next step. That's the goal is to, you know, get in the training montage and sharpen those skills up and, and get back on, on that market again. You're, you're also just known as being a super creative deck builder, whether it's, uh, you know, Thopter Storden, KCI, Wayward Swartooth and Amulet, Through the Breach and Amulet, Four Color Yorion recently in Pioneer. Where, where do you get, this is the, probably the hardest question. It's like how ask someone to explain themselves. Like, where do you get this creativity from? Like, how does it, like, does it come from like a, a just studying the game or does it come from like a non-magic place? Like where, where do these like moments of insight come from? I think it is just having that depth of experience in magic because I, I don't know if I'm an especially creative person in other facets of life. And I honestly, my skills at magic, such as they are, don't really extend to games outside of magic. Like I'm not one of these people who also is at the top of the Hearthstone ladder and crushing Legends of Rune Terror or something on the side. Um, you know, I, I knew people who went into poker back in the day and made a killing doing that, but I, I never really had the skill set to be one of them, uh, I think. So it's always just really been magic for me. Um, and so I, I guess I've been around the block long enough and delved into the 
the deepest recesses enough to kind of know what I need to form these connections between like seemingly obscure things. Uh, and so, yeah, if I see a new deck in a new format, I can reach for some analogy with some deck in some other format from 10 years ago that might not seem obvious at first glance, but it helps me to make that mental shortcut, which might not be easy to make otherwise. Okay. I want to dig into this more, but it's really hard because it's like, I'm not at that level where I can do these things that you're doing. So it's very hard to ask the question or to, dr to drill in, but are you saying that it's just because you are exposed to so much of it that you can take these kind of references and apply it to a certain format that you're working on right now? Or like, am I, am I trivializing your answer or is like, cause I, I still feel like it has to come from someplace, right? Maybe. I, I think that's uh, that's an apt description of it, but actually delving into the origin of that is, I, I don't know if I have the self-awareness to, to do that necessarily. It's just, uh, you know, my mind makes connections between things and sometimes those don't pan out. Sometimes those lead me astray, but, uh, and that's the thing, right? There's That's where the survivorship bias creeps back into it, where for every brilliant innovation you see from anyone there's a lot of failed attempts at that or different things or what have you so I, I definitely have lots of uh you know deck ideas i got really excited about and then just kind of flopped and i was disappointed about it um but you you kind of need to have enough of those that the one out of ten or whatever fraction it is that makes its way through can can have the, the chance to flourish yeah absolutely all right. Well, Dom, thank you so much for this conversation. What's the best place for people to find you on social or where you would like to be found? Uh, so you, you can find those apparently delightful tweets uh, at Dom and Javier on Twitter. Uh, I guess I, I, I have the obligation to plug my podcast. So find Dominaria's Judgment on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify. Yeah, the list goes on. Um, and that's really it. I'm always open to just chatting with people, throwing ideas back and forth with people. I do offer magic coaching if that's something you're interested in investing in uh but interested in you know meeting people and collaborating with people on whatever so always feel free to hit me up with questions and you know the the worst answer you're going to get from me is uh, i'm sorry i can't really focus on that right now but uh hopefully i'll be able to give you more than that excellent dom thank you so much for your time and best of luck in all your future pro tours well thank you very much Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Magic. To support the show, visit humansofmagic.com, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at humansofmagic, and you can also consider supporting us at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.